earlier this summer, uh, my sons and I got to go to a Phillies baseball game, and uh, somebody gave us tickets, and these weren't just anybody's tickets. We were like 19 rows off a of third base, and you could hear the ump talk, not like strike one, but you could actually hear him if you listen closely at times, and you could see features, you know, and like Ruiz would run up to third base, you could see him talking to third base coach. We wore our glove most of the game because of the fouls, you know, we actually had to be on the lookout. And it made me think that when I was a younger, when I was a young boy living here, I went to a few baseball games in the vet stadium. <laughs> and I was in the nosebleeds, which in the vet is you take an airplane to get there. <laughs> and I, it just remarked on what a different experience it was to be. I mean, first of all, there's hardly a bad seat in the current stadium. But to be in a great seat in a great stadium how much deeper the baseball experience was, how, how tied in we were to the game, how, how it was uh, hard to ignore the game because it was right before you. And it was uh, just where we were sitting made the experience deeper. You know, I would say it's more than simply a different experience than being in the nosebleeds. It's a deeper experience when you're that close, close up. And that's, that's true in a, lot, in a lot of things. In a lot of things, just your, position, your physical position to something uh, affects your experience. If you think of a concert, you're going to go to a concert of a band you could really care less about. You just, you know, got drug along by your friends. Well, in your mind, you, th- you know, you don't want to s- deal with the crowds up front. In fact, you're thinking in your mind, I hope there are seats so I can sit. That's kind of how at least how I think these days, versus if you're a fan, you're not thinking about sitting. In fact, you look down on the sitters as though they're not true loyalists. And then there is this like one step, for, there's more than a fan, there's the groupie who is the kind of fan who waits at the ticket master, they camp out to be the first ones to buy tickets and they show up a day early and they're sitting right up against the stage and it's not just their intention to sit, stand. They're going to stand, and they're going to jump, and they're going to scream, and they're going to faint, and they're going to hopefully get you know, water sprayed on them from a water bottle or something like that. They, but, and I'll say, you know, I'm not one of those people, but their experience is a deeper experience in its own shallow, Justin Bieber sort of way. It is, it's still a deeper experience than sitting way in the back, leaning up against a wall. You don't really feel like the musician's singing to you. When, when you're there, he's singing to you. He's looking at you. He may even reach down and shake your hand. And it's, it's more than games and concerts. In classrooms, you feel this way. If you ever go to... This is just a, the reality, this, a true dynamic. You go to a class. If it's a subject matter that you're very, very interested in, you will most likely migrate towards the front of the room when you're looking for a seat. Because... You are trying to take everything that the instructor has to say in, the teacher or the professor. You want to be able to engage with the professor. If you have a question, you want to be able to ask. And the people on the front row, they always ask more questions, in part because they're on the front row. right? There's nothing in between them and the teacher. There's a relationship that's being built. Versus if it is a class that you dread, that you want nothing to do with, that you have to be there, you migrate towards the back. That's just how it works. 
and you slouch, and you text, and you don't engage with the teacher, and you're not really there. The teaching is given, but you're not really engaged with the teacher. The truth is, is we draw close to the things that are close to us. We just migrate towards things that are close to us. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series about the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in Matthew 5-7. through And over these next four weeks, we'll be examining um, a sermon, a, a type of sermon, a typical kind of sermon that Jesus would give to his followers. This is what Matthew is doing in chapters 5 and 7. Most, most believe, and I agree with this, is he's kind of cataloging the typical things that Jesus would regularly teach to his followers during his ministry. And Matthew's kind of assembled them all in kind of a very typical flow so that we might kind of know this is the heart of what Jesus taught. And he cases it in a very typical scenario. This is a very typical scenario where Jesus kind of migrates outside of the town or the city and, and kind of goes to the hill country or in some places like Galilee. He actually goes down to the river where he can set out on a boat and teach, but he goes to the hill country and sets himself up on a hill and people would follow him, those who were followers, would follow him out and they would sit beneath him. They would sit beneath his teaching and they would sit on the hillside beneath him as he would teach. But these are followers. These are not like passers-by. This is... This is not the message that Jesus would preach in the temple courts while people were doing business. This is not that kind of message. People who are hearing what what we're going to be reading over these next four weeks have taken time, set it aside, and they're following Jesus. All sorts of followers. And an entire spectrum of followers, right? At like the one end, you have the apostles, the twelve the capital D, Disciples of God, they are certainly the inner circle. And it even says that right in the beginning of Matthew, it says that he began to teach the disciples. Now, now that disciples is a broader idea, but certainly the disciples were there, kind of sitting at the feet of Jesus. But then kind of, you can imagine positionally, right behind them would be a whole host of disciples, like lowercase disciples, committed followers, but not apostolic. People who, people who were dedicated followers of Jesus, they just, you know, they were there. It matters to them what he says. They've been following him occasionally from town to town. They've committed their lives towards following him. They recognize maybe not the wholeness of who he is, but the impact of who he is. The fact that the presence of Christ and the teaching of Christ is shaping and transforming and rephrasing their life. There's, there's that crowd, right? And then there's the crowd behind them that are attracted to what this Jesus is saying. They know that there's something right about it, but they also know that they don't know a lot. You know, so they're the kind of crowd, I don't, I don't, you know, I just know that that guy got it. He has it. And, and I like it, and I want to be here, and I want more. And they may not be able to say that they're wholeheartedly sold out, but they can, they can kind of say, but I'm on the way in. Right? And then there's followers that are kind of on the outside, kind of looking in, the curious followers. And, and you can just imagine, as any crowd, how right up front are the intense followers, and it just kind of filters and thins out as far as like devotion. Pretty soon you're to the person who wants to be the first to get to their car when it all ends. 
So sitting in the back, and that's what's first in their mind, is exit strategy. Right? And where they sit shows it. And it kind of goes all the way out like that. But they are followers. Now, if you kind of pull the apostles out of that, it's a pretty fair cross-section of what's here this morning. There's all those kind of followers here. This is, in fact, you might think of the Sermon on the Mount as the kind of penultimate conversation that Christ has with the church. This is not something he's saying in a debate. And this is not something he's saying to people who don't want to hear. Or he's not arguing this with the Pharisees. And this is not an academic conversation. He's saying this to people who are following him. Let me just read you an example. And we will likely read this passage every week. This is what he says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Who's he talking to? It has to be followers. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are a light. You are the light of the world. Who's he talking to? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. Then they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is talking to the gathering, which in Greek is ecclesia, which in English is church. He's talking to followers. He's talking to people who have some level of commitment. I'm not saying they're all the same. I'm not saying they all have the same reason for being there. I'm not saying they have all the same kind of hopes or fears or concerns or wants or, or any of that. I'm saying at some level, everybody on that hillside, like for the most part, everybody in this room, is a follower. And this is about the finest words in Scripture that Jesus addresses the church. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, as we begin to look into your word and specifically uh, the Beatitudes, Lord, I just pray that uh, you would draw people closer to you. Father, we thank, thank you that you Um, have spoken to us and that you reveal yourself through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if if I had a kind of an overarching question that I would give you, it would be kind of where are you sitting? Like on the hillside. I would be curious, I would be curious for you to answer your own question about kind of what kind of follower are you? Where are you sitting? I'm not saying like if Jesus were here preaching today, on a hill, where would you go sit? I know everybody would go to the front row because he's God and because he sees you. I'm saying, right, in your life, where are you sitting? Because that's what God really sees. It's not the one-time event, but he actually sees right now. And so that would kind of be an overarching question that um, I, hope, I hope would c- come out of the text. 
So what we're going to do is, why don't we read, let's read the Beatitudes. We're just going to do, we're going to focus on verses 3 to 10, but we'll be uh, doing the first 12 this morning. So I'll begin to read and then uh, we'll step back for a second. Verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in 11 and 12, he starts to summary transition towards the next topic. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is obviously a, a part of the text that people write a lot about. And it's not uncommon for scholars or teachers to talk about these beatitudes um, in certain kind of categorical ways. Some of them will say what the beatitudes are doing, the way they're instructing us is. They're kind of taking what was formerly understood as the kingdom of God and turning it on its head. You know, the whole first shall be last and last shall be first. That God's doing that here. He's kind of, it's, it's kind of a way of laying out the suspicious nature of the way that the kingdom reaches in. That's something that people will say. People will also say this is a way that Christ is showing that... Uh, the people who are on the outside are now on the inside. And, and all of this is partly true. I, I, this, is, this is partly true, but I, I, I have this, this conviction to say, Jesus is not simply teaching a precept about the kingdom. Think of it, God is sitting on a hillside speaking to people, which is far more significant than like teaching an idea about the kingdom. He, he's, what I think Jesus is doing is in what he's saying, he is drawing people closer to him. In his mind, and, and I mean, who am I to say what's in his mind, but what I think is, is going on here is God is, Christ is laying ideas out as an invitation to encourage people who are scattered across the hill to come closer. That's more than a teaching. That's like a preaching. It's like a calling. It's, it's relational. And, and it shows this way. First of all, the first word I want to call to your attention is the word blessed. Uh, blessed is a compromise by every translator who writes the Beatitudes. Blessed. It's not actually blessed. No, no translator will say it's blessed. It's an untranslatable idea and sometimes the best, the best technical translation of the, of the idea sounds wrong in our, in our culture. So 
One way, one way that's more correct would be happy. Happy are those who mourn. But that, like, psychologically doesn't work for us because it just sounds wrong, right? Another one would be congratulations to the people who are persecuted. Congratulations. It's, it's more of the, what the, the Greek there is, is more of a pronouncement or a, a congratulatory announcement. It, it, the best way that I think it can be expressed is, oh, the blessing. Oh, what a blessing it is. That's actually, I think, if, if you were sitting at the feet of Christ and you were speaking in English, he would say, what a blessing it is to those who are poor in spirit. It would be a pronouncement over you. What a profound blessing. Which doesn't make it any less curious. But it is more emotive. And this is what he says. He says, Oh, what a blessing it is to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when he says this, Jesus is, is referring to people who have a knowledge of their poverty. In fact, in Luke, the beatitude is blessed are the poor. Jesus is responding. He's speaking on a hillside to the person and to the person who understands their spiritual impoverishment. The idea to that person, to that person who knows that they're... They are, they're not fooled by their wealth. All they experience in light of the overwhelming kingdom of God is their own impoverishment. Their desperate need for God. Jesus says, what a blessing it is to be there. Like for that person, and there are some of you here who are like that. Right? Not all of us are all the Beatitudes. Some of us exhibit some of the Beatitudes some of the time. But there are some of you who have modeled for me kind of an impoverished spirit, which is a spirit that says, nothing makes me feel wealthy but God. And Jesus is saying, to those people, you're in the vicinity of the kingdom. Like, if you, if you have in your spirit a realization that all the wealth of the world and all the ability of the world and all these things that confuse us and distract us, that they are worthless apart from our our just overwhelming need for Christ. Jesus is saying, what a blessing it is to have that kind of countenance. You're You're close to the kingdom. It's this knowledge of their poverty. Look at the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. The idea is, is Christ is speaking to those who have a knowledge of brokenness. He's saying to the people who, when they see something broken, their heart breaks. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm like that. Like, what a blessing it is to have the eyes of God. That when you see sin in your own life, it breaks your heart. And when you see injustice somewhere, it breaks your heart. And when you see something that's fallen or when there's death or sickness that you don't stand back and just kind of look at it and you don't go, oh, well, I guess they got what they deserve. That in all times everywhere that your heart breaks because that was not part of God's creative process in the beginning. And it's the consequence of sin and it breaks your heart. And for those people, Jesus says, Oh, what a blessing it is when you mourn the things that I mourn. Because when I make everything new, imagine the comfort you will feel. 
I may be first among these people, but I think we joke too much. I think we joke about a lot of things that should grieve us. In fact, I think sometimes we joke as a pagan therapy to brokenness. We have to joke about it, otherwise we'd weep over it. What a blessing it is to have eyes that see the world the way that Christ sees them. Blessed are the meek. This is a person who has this knowledge of their smallness. You're the kind of person who knows that you don't have any cards to play in this game. On the globe, half the world is below average. And you're one of them. And you know it. And it's true by the world's standards. That's what meekness is is to know that you have nothing that's going to commend you before the kingdom. That you're not the kind of person that is confusing themselves to say, well, yeah, you know, God's trying to recruit me for his team. Or, you know, I'll tell you what, things will really be better when I'm on board. Or this idea that you actually have some commendable attribute that the Lord's been waiting for. And that he's so glad to have you. And that your gift is what's going to make the church really work now. And, and this added, that prideful attitude that you... what. The way you've been equipped is somehow a meaningful contribution to the kingdom. God equipped you. You were nothing. The meek person knows it. The meek person is the kind of person, and you're here, right? And usually, you're still ashamed to even know it. But it is a blessing. It is a blessing to see people exhibit meekness. For people to show, look, I have nothing and mean it, right? Not false humility. This is profound meekness, the kind of meekness that knows their smallness. It's the kind of meekness that knows all I have is the grace of Christ, and there's no way I've earned it because I have nothing to give. What a blessing it is to be meek. You're close to the kingdom. If you're here this morning and you don't have talent, you can't sing, and you're terrible in school, and you can barely read, and you're not funny, and you sit in the corner, and you don't know, you know, you don't know how to make friends, and you don't know, and this and that, and this and that, and you're such kind of a zero on paper, God is here to say, what a blessing it is, because you know better than anyone that your grace was unmerited. And I can do so much with that. God can do so much more with a meek human than he can with a capable, arrogant human. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is a blessing to know people who desire to know truth more than religion. It's a blessing to know people who, who instead of knowing answers desire, in fact, to know like the deepness of the answer, the wholeness of the answer. How does this relate to how God works? How, does, how do the pieces come together? The, the, it's not simply knowing more knowledge. It's about understanding the way God works in His truth. If this is you, you're in the vicinity of the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful. 
are eager to forgive. Like, as I've been writing this whole sermon, I've, I, and I can't call out names, um, and I won't, but I have, it's been a distinct blessing because I said, well, I don't, I don't exhibit the Beatitudes, some of them, some of the time. But when you think of our church together, they're here. They're just shared. And some of you are eager to forgive. In fact, you rush to forgiveness. And it's beautiful. It's marvelous. It's, it's humbling the way that some of you, not only do you not hold a grudge, but you exercise forgiveness as a means of preaching the gospel. Like when someone sins against you, you're, you don't even know it, right? It took me a while to even think of it this way. That when someone sins against you, your spirit is automatically postured to anticipate the opportunity to forgive them as a means of showing Christ. That is a blessing. What a positive blessing. You're not talking about what you deserve. You're not talking about this. What you're doing is you've experienced the grace of Christ. And you have a heart that wants to forgive the way you've been forgiven. You're in the vicinity of the kingdom. If, if you're that, you're drawing close to God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Unlike us, you are not shackled by agenda. You know, I, there are these times when you meet someone who just, there's no byproduct of what they're doing. They're doing something good because it's good. Some of you do that very well. Some of you are just good people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking is active. It's not passive. Standing by and and hoping things don't collapse is called appeasement, not peacemaking. Okay? When your spouse is annoying and frustrating and immature and you suffer it, that's appeasement. That's not peacemaking because they're annoying and insufferable to everyone else. And I'm very serious about that. You are creating a gargantuan problem by your appeasement and your passivity. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is not talking to that. Jesus is speaking to the active person who sacrificially intercedes within a conflict and puts their arms up at great risk themselves and mediates and counsels. This is a counseling spirit. This is at risk to myself and my relationship with these people, I'm on the way in. Blessed are those people who've come down into conflict and set the sides apart. Oh, what a blessing it is to be a peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. You get it. If you're persecuted for righteousness, Jesus is saying you get it. He's saying you understand the size of the kingdom. 
you understand the grandeur of what God's going to do. You understand in some faint but real way how big God is and how divine and holy and powerful it is. And it reframes your world and the way you prioritize things. That you're willing to do things that in your mind, you're willing to do things that others won't do because the kingdom is obviously first. To you, you're close. You're in the vicinity of God. When Jesus preaches like this, He's drawing you closer to him. This is what I would call a positive form of preaching the gospel. We, we're, we're very good, and rightly so in some ways, we're pretty good at talking about the negative form of the gospel, the bad good news. You're a sinner and you need Jesus. Okay? What Jesus has just done is preached the good good news, which is he's looked into our lives and he's found that thing about you that's closest to the kingdom. And he's called it out and he's set it up and he's saying, what a blessing this thing is. This thing about you is such a blessing. It's the closest thing of you to my kingdom. Draw close. And we could do this. We can do this within the faith, right? We should be a people who are never ceasing to encourage one another about these things. We should say to people, you know, I got to say, like, you are, have no talent, but the way you love Jesus knocks me over. Like, I marveled at you. I admire you to the highest degree by the low way that you live with God. We should be able to say something like that. We should be able to say to the person whose heart mourns when there's a hurricane down south, I'm not that person. I'll tell you, I'm not that person. But when people in the church mourn and are broken because of people dying on the other side of the planet, I see God's kingdom there, and I should be the one to say, that's better, right? That is the kingdom. We can do this within the faith and without the faith. When you find someone in your workplace who has a heart for justice, right? They always want to stand up for the right thing, and they're always concerned about the injustice in the world. They're not Christian. They're totally pagan. Still, you can call that out as being kingdom-minded. You can say, look, I know we're not on the same sheet. I know you're, you're that, and I'm this, but I just got to say, that element of you is just so admirable that even in my own Christian life, it spurs me closer to God. That's a way of, that's a way of calling them up the hill. That's a way of saying, what a blessing it is that you care about justice and that you thirst for righteousness that you look for these things and that they move you, you're not far. I, I can almost promise you that's the door that they'll walk through when they enter the kingdom. It's through their mourning or through their heart of mercy or it's through their sense of justice or it's through their lowly spirit or it's through their meekness or it's through the fact that they felt impoverished their whole life and they've never had anything until they discover the surpassing wealth of Jesus Christ thrown and poured on them like an overwhelming flood. That's how they're going to enter in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is unlocking for people on the hill the kingdom of God. He's drawing his followers closer because here's the deal. The closer you are to the Lord, the closer you draw to Christ, the deeper his truths become. It's, it's the same as a classroom or a ball game or a concert that when you're sitting way back on the hill curious, 
You may be hearing what's said, but you're not hearing what's being said. You're hearing the teachings like a precept. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's like a bullet statement. It's a disconnected teaching. That just came out of the mouth of God. But when it gets to you, it's just kind of coming through teletype. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Stop. Looking at it on a ticker tape. When you're that far away, it's disconnected from who he is. But as you draw closer and closer, the meaning, it's almost as though some of you, 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 you're followers. And I'm saying you're followers. But you're so far back that you can't even hear Jesus. You're listening to what other people are saying. You're kind of like, what did he say? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh. And then you go off and you kind of talk and you mill about, right? Is he going to heal anybody? Call me when he heals somebody. Because you're far enough back that you can have your own little petty Christian-esque conversation about who's seeing who and how's it going. And meanwhile, Jesus is on the hill saying, blessed are the merciful, blessed. But you're far enough away that you, you, you don't experience Jesus when you hear these words. Whereas some of you, as we draw closer, because eventually, right, one day you're just hanging out in the back of the crowd and you're complaining to the Complain to your friend about how you have nothing and how you're underwater and how the mortgage is going to close and your wife left you and right it's everything's going wrong and it's on that day when you hear blessed are the poor in spirit that you say what what did he just say and you'll start to move closer and pretty soon the closer you move you'll hear his voice you hear the inflection in his voice and the warmth in his voice and the compassion in his voice in the way, in every way that Jesus is thinking about us when he says these things. And what you thought you understood when you read it, you now understand you had no clue because now you hear it coming out of the mouth of God. And it draws you closer to his word and closer to his truth. And eventually, you're close enough, just like that concert groupie. You're on the front row and you see Jesus and he looks at you when he says it. He says... Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he stares you straight in the eye. That's what he's doing. He's drawing us closer. Because the relationship is truly deeper the closer we are. And we see, if you can see Jesus face to face, you would see that the things he's saying, he's not just saying, they're autobiographical. That Jesus is the physical epicenter of the Beatitudes that they're falling out of him. It's like, it's not a sermon on the mount, it's a sermon on a volcano. And the Beatitudes are spawning out of the top. And the closer you draw to the Lord, the more you experience more of the Beatitudes, and the more you realize that he's the source of the Beatitudes, that when you look and when you see, blessed are the poor in spirit, you're close enough now to see Jesus, that he himself was driven into the desert, was deprived of food and of wealth and of ability and of power, and that he himself said to Satan, I desire nothing but the knowledge of God. He's enough for me. Without God, I'm nothing. And with God, I'm everything I need to be. Blessed. What a blessing it is to be poor in spirit because then you fill the wealth of God. And if you drew close enough to see him and he said, blessed are those who mourn, you would see eyes that shed tears for Lazarus. You'd see eyes that shed tears for the city of Jerusalem. You would see eyes that looked on, in the Revelation when John says, I wept. And I wept what showed up. The Lamb of Comfort. I'll open the scroll. You'll be comforted. If you could see him, the closer you would get. 
Blessed are the meek, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says in John 4, after all the disciples went in to get food and they come back out and they they said, why aren't you eating? He said, I have food that you don't even know about. To do the will of the Father and to fulfill his purpose is food for me. You would see that if you could see Christ. You would see that in him. You would see that the Beatitudes are of him and come from him. Blessed are the merciful. Forgive them, Lord, for they not know, they know not what they do. And being criticized, Christ said, I came for the sick, not the healthy. The sick need me. I even think of this time when he looks at the rich man who's confused about his righteousness. He says, I've done everything right. And it says, and Jesus looked on him and loved him. What a heart of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For he who had no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Blessed are the peacemaker. If you were close enough to see him in his eyes, you'd remember that at his birth, the heavenly hosts joined the angels in saying, Glory unto God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole community of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe. They put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. You'd see that. If you were close to Christ, you would see that coming out of these Beatitudes. But Jesus isn't just saying teachings. He's not simply turning the kingdom on its head. He's not telling you that you're in. He's saying I I exhibit the fullness of the kingdom through a lowly spirit and a merciful heart and a pure soul and a desire to know good and truth and a willingness to be persecuted for my father's kingdom and a thirst for righteousness and all of these things. These things are what it means to be in the kingdom. We draw close to the things that are close to us. I am curious. If you were on the hill, where would you be sitting? And I invite you to move closer. 